um, not getting to see you guys, but uh, it doesn't mean I can be more involved with some youth group stuff. Uh, I want to say welcome. We're going to be continuing on looking at the book of Thessalonians. We are finishing up the book of the first book of Thessalonians. Uh, last week we heard from Ben, who talked a bit about uh, living to please God, but also the reality of those in Christ, those who are believers amongst us who have passed away, uh, and, and that they will be raised with us at the coming of the new kingdom. Uh, Paul is going to continue on talking about the future and what is to come, but I'm going to pray for us before we get into that, so let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is always with us. We thank you that you are a God who loves and teaches uh, and helps us to grow. We just pray now as we look into your word that you will open our hearts and minds to be uh, willing to listen and learn to grow closer to you through your word. Uh, We pray that you'll guide what is spoken and that what is said, and it will all be done in your glory for Jesus' name, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Does anyone know what this is? Doomsday clock. A few of you are, know what it is. Uh, for those of you who don't know what this is, it's, it's a doomsday clock. That's a very uplifting way to start our service. Uh, it's, it's a clock that was established after the Second World War by what's called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Uh, and what it is, it's a symbol that these scientists use to represent the likelihood of man-made global catastrophe. So when it was first created, it was looking into mostly the idea of nuclear war and the potential for wiping out most life on Earth, uh, but as time has gone on, it's been used to pretty much encompass all forms of man-made destruction. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is that this week, the countdown to midnight uh, got the closest it's ever been. It got to 100 seconds to midnight. Uh, it was previously at two minutes. Uh, we've lost 20 seconds, according to these scientists. Uh, the, the longest it's ever been from midnight was in, the 1990, was in 1991, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, where it was at 17 minutes. Uh, so we are, according to these scientists, dangerously close to destruction. Uh, the end of the world is a terrifying uh, prospect, but I think it's something that human beings are always thinking about. Uh, you only have to look at our media to see how much we love Global destruction. The last big like movie I watched was uh, that you know the movie 2012, most ridiculous movie I ever saw, uh, but it was pretty cool looking. Uh, but we love it. We love destruction. We love to to engage in it in a media uh, entertainment medium, but we are terrified of it in reality. And so many of us do a lot to prepare for it. Uh, one such group of people that I want to talk about this morning are members of the Family Christian Radio in America. Uh, a man called Harold Camping, who was the president of this radio, he was a pastor, he was a minister, he was a radio host. He predicted that the world was going to end on the 21st of May, 2011. Uh, he believed that he had found proof throughout the Bible, adding all the numbers up, that the world was going to end on that date. Uh, as they drew closer to the date, he changed his prediction, he pushed it back to September, and he prepared himself and his family and his followers for the end of the world. Now, Most of you are aware the world didn't end that day. We're all still here, standing, enjoying the heat. Uh, And he was a bit embarrassed. Uh, But a lot of his followers were also in a bit of a worse position. Many of them had sold all of their things. They had gone around the world trying to tell people to repent and, and come back to God because the end was coming. And then they were left at this moment with nothing. The Apostle Paul in the book of Thessalonians wants us to consider and think about the end of the world, but he wants us to do it in a a different way to the way that others have gone about it. 
And he's st- just to give you an idea where we're at, we're here in the timeline. Uh, Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica at this point, which is the sort of Holy Spirit creating and forming the church throughout the world. But he's writing about this time, the coming of Christ and the day of judgment. And he starts by addressing it in 1 Thessalonians, if you look with me, verses 1 to 2, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul straight away tells his followers, looking to the future, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. Uh, it's an it's a, uh, imagery that's used throughout the New Testament, a thief in the night, the idea being simply that a thief does not announce or tell anyone when he's going to rob, and he comes at night when it's least expected. Now, I know at Oran Park, most robberies actually occur during the middle of the day while you're at work, um, but back then, most robberies would have occurred at night because there was no public lighting. And, also, and, and thieves would never announce to someone that they were planning to rob from you because you would stay awake. Uh, so Paul is trying to say to, to the Thessalonians, you do not know and you cannot predict and you will not be able to figure out when the day of the Lord will come. It will come suddenly and unexpectedly without announcement. Uh, a few other verses that really just explain this more is found in the Gospels. Uh, about the day of the hour, about, about that day, that is the day of the Lord, uh, or our no one knows, not even the angels or in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, only the Father of Jesus knows when the day of the Lord will come. And this is a big point found throughout the Bible. Uh, you may notice that these verses are from different Gospels, but are exactly the same. Uh, if you look at it in the Greek, there are like slightly different words, so they're not copied and pasted, but they're words like and and if and in, not big words. But the, the Gospels are trying to make this point to us, no one knows except the Father. No one can predict. And if I was to summarize what this whole talk today is about, it is found in Matthew 24, therefore keep watch because you do not know when the Lord will come. Be alert, be prepared because you don't know. That is the message of the Bible when it comes to the day of judgment. It is the whole point really of this section of Thessalonians. Uh, Paul kind of shifts a bit. He's still talking about the future, but he shifts to focusing a bit on the people of the world. And he says this, if you read with me in verse 3, he says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. He gives us this imagery of sort of people happily living their lives, and then suddenly pain comes upon them, destruction comes upon them like a, a pregnant woman. Now, Stuart and I were talking about this a while back. It is a bit of an unusual statement because I feel like most women know that they're pregnant and that it's coming. Uh, And so it seems a bit weird trying to figure out what Paul is talking about. Uh, I went to a birthing class on Friday with Naomi and it was interesting hearing them talk about the the idea of labor pains can start two weeks before the birth. And you kind of get this lead up of, of, of sort of, it's coming and you're prepared and you're ready for it. And yet Paul is using this as an analogy for the world. Uh, And as I was trying to think about what he's actually trying to say, I thought back to the doomsday clock. Uh, I I read about the 100 seconds earlier this week, and and I was a bit alarmed. I looked and went, oh, that's a bit troubling. We're getting closer and closer to destruction. And then I closed my browser, I turned on my PS4, and I played video games and forgot all about it. And that, I share that because I think that's really what we're like. We love to distract ourselves. We love to put off, some of you, not all of us, some of you have, we all got different personalities, but I think we can all use things to distract ourselves from real harsh realities. 
And one of those realities is the, is the, the day of judgment. And Paul is hinting that the world is aware that it is coming. And you only have to see that in the way that we are constantly thinking about it. We are constantly thinking about our own destruction. We are constantly making movies about our own destruction, writing stories about our own destruction. They change. You go from aliens to environmental to whatever the next thing will be that we're afraid of. But the world is aware it's coming. And so Paul is creating this picture of a world that would rather distract themselves than acknowledge the truth of the pain that is to come, like a pregnant woman who doesn't want to acknowledge the pain that is to come. He moves on a bit. He moves on to create this imagery of light and darkness. As you read with me, verses 4 to 7. He says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Uh, Paul contrasts uh, this idea of light and darkness. And this is, these are themes that are found throughout Paul's many letters. If you read the book of Ephesians, again, he talks about do not live as those in the darkness. Uh, and the simplest way to understand it is that light is where God wants us to be, and darkness is where the world is. And he creates these sort of different uh, contrasts between the world of light and darkness. And the first one is that people of the light are prepared he describes to the Thessalonians, you know the end is coming. You know that you can't predict it, but you are prepared and you are ready. And yet he describes the world then like a woman in childbirth who doesn't want to acknowledge it as surprised and shocked that destruction would ever come, distracted, unwilling to focus. He then talks about the idea of being of the day and of the night, uh, and the simplest explanation for this is that at nighttime, no one sees what you can do. No one can see you. And so what you do at night is considered unsavory and wrong, whereas what you do at day is considered something you want to be seen. It's not, this, it's not about the idea of like wanting to look good or anything like that. It's more about the idea of shame. The things you do at night are the things that you are ashamed of because no one sees them. No one witnesses the sin. Whereas if you act in the day, it is things that you are, are confident for people to see, not for your own self-indulgence and own lifting up, but that these are things that you would not be ashamed of the world to see. Uh, that's a bit harder for us as, to acknowledge as we live in a sort of 24-hour lifestyle. I live in a city now and it's noisy all the time and everyone's up all the time for some reason. But back in those days, if you were out at night, it was considered shameful. It was considered unusual and shady. And so what he's trying to say when he uses this idea is that you are people who are not ashamed of your behavior and want people to see that behavior because it draws them to Jesus. Thirdly, he uses the idea of awake and sober versus asleep and drunk. The people of God are awake and sober, while the people of darkness are drunk and asleep. Now, I want to be cautious here. The word asleep, some of you who were paying attention last week will notice that the word asleep was used to describe the believer's of God who had perished and who were waiting for the coming kingdom and, and the resurrection that they would receive. Uh, and then Paul uses it here to describe sinners and their distracted nature. And then later on, he'll use it again to describe the believers who have passed away. And the short answer to why he does that is that words, the same word can have different meanings. Uh, it's not so common in, in, in 
English, but especially in Greek, they would use the same word to mean many different things, and it creates a bit of a difficulty for us as we, we read. Uh, but you kind of get the point. You can kind of differentiate just in English that he's, he's talking about something a little different here than the believers who have perished. Uh, but what he's really creating for us, and, he, and I think he summarizes this whole imagery, and if you read with me in verse 8, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation of a helmet. He, he shifts to this military language. And what he's trying to say is that you are to be like a sentry on guard. You are alert, you are focused, and you are prepared for what is to come. And that is the imagery that he uses to describe the people of the light. They know what is to come, they look to the future, and they are prepared for it. They are not distracted, they are not looking away, but they are prepared. Does everyone know who these two people are? Most of you would know. Yeah. So, no? Oh, so a lot of Republicans in the room, is that the idea? Uh, this, is, this is Prince Harry and Meghan. They are the sons of Prince... Charles, thank you very much. I was going to say Philip, but Philip is, is the, the dad, uh, and who is, the, who is the son of the Queen. So they're the Queen's grandchildren in England. Uh, and they've been in the media a lot lately uh, because they want to move out of their parents' house. No, uh, they, they're in the media a lot because they, they are, they are they're royal family and they have royal duties and they have announced that they will be publicly stepping down from their role as members of what they refer to as senior royals in the royal family. They are, in, in essence, giving up their duties uh, their appointment to go and do something different. Now, this has caused a lot of outrage because people, uh, one, feel entitled to famous people's personal lives and want to comment on it, and two, because for some, there's a perception here that they are essentially giving up some, a job that they are responsible for. I don't know if you know this, but Prince Harry is actually the head of the Royal Marines uh, in the United Kingdom. It's his role. Uh, it was one of his many roles. And people are upset because it seems like they were appointed to do this job and they've decided they don't want to do it anymore. They want to do something else. They want to live a different life. Uh, there, there's plenty of reasons that people are using, and I ultimately don't want to make a reason because I don't know them. Uh, but the outrage is that they want to abdicate, they want to give up their appointment. And Paul actually uses this same kind of idea for us. He, when he says, he says this, if you read me from verse 9, he says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, he may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you are in fact doing. Paul uses this language of appointment. You have been appointed for salvation. You have been appointed to be prepared. And he's, what he's trying to say is don't give up your appointment. Don't look to the future and be afraid. Don't look to the future with concern and fear. Don't look to the future and worry. Because you have been appointed not to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. You have been saved so that you know you will be safe on the day of judgment. It is not something you fear, but it is something you prepare for because you know you will be safe. Paul wants the readers of Thessalonica to look to the future with anticipation and eagerness to see what is coming and be ready. It is a little bit, it's probably not the right word, a little bit perverse in a way that we, we look to the future, we look to this day of judgment where if you looked in our reading of Peter, it's not going to be a quiet, subtle, calm day. It's going to be a day of destruction, of judgment. It's going to be a loud day, and yet we eagerly look forward to it, not because we want to see people die, but because 
We want to see Jesus. We want to see our King return, and we know we are saved through him. Uh, Paul then moves on from talking about the future to talking about what they should do now in light of the future. It looks, when you first read this last half of chapter 5, that Paul is kind of just rounding out his his letter. He's like, all right, here's some other random things, some stuff I forgot to fill in earlier, do this, do this, uh, like a checklist. Uh, But it's actually really important that you remember that the the author of of Thessalonians, Paul, and most of the authors throughout the whole Bible, they don't just throw random things in to fill it out. They often have a purpose in everything that they write. Uh, And so while the brackets there are really helpful in finding stuff, it's also important to remember that it is one continuous letter. I I was trying to figure out what Paul's trying to write about, and if you look with me at verse three, chapter three, verse 10, he says this, he says, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply to you what is lacking. He wants to supply the Thessalonians, his purpose for writing this letter is to supply what is lacking, sorry, I left out a word, in your faith. Supply what is lacking in your faith. And their fear of the future is something that they they have and that's something they need to change. And this little bit here at the end is not an add-on, but how they prepare, how they get ready for the future in their life together. And the first way is how they treat those who lead the people in authority over them, those who work hard for the gospel. And he says this, if you look with me at verse 12, he says, urge you, we urge you, brothers and sisters, uh, sorry, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul wants you to support those who lead you. In your faith. Uh, I'm in a, a really unique position as I give you, present to you from the Bible. Uh, I have spent the last, well, before college, I'd spent eight years working full-time uh, in a church context in a ministry, in ministry. Uh, and my role shifted from being just mostly youth to being the whole church to operating essentially as an assistant minister. Uh, and then I came to more college, and now my role has completely switched. I'm, I'm not, a, I wouldn't say outsider, but I'm definitely much less involved in ministry, uh, and I kind of, I'm, you know, it kind of feels a bit like a break to me, if I'm honest. Uh, and I have an opportunity now to, to look, be on the outside and look in and say to you guys that ministry is really, really hard, that it is a tough job, that it is a tiring job, it is a painful job. Uh, it is a wonderful job. It is an exciting job. It is a blessed job. Stuart doesn't go home and cry every night kind of thing. But it is something that is exhausting and painful. And Stuart and Michael and Lauren and your, your ministry team, they work really hard for you. And I, I actually, what I love about you guys is that I think for the most part, you are a really encouraging church towards your leadership. Paul wants the people of God to encourage their leaders because they need it. He wants them to acknowledge the work that they do. I think one of the worst things you can ever say, and I swear if you say it to me, I won't get violent, but I may just walk away, is that ministers only work one day a week. I've heard that joke so many times. We all say it as a joke, and it's funny, but it's actually really hurtful because it doesn't acknowledge that they don't. They work seven days a week. And Paul wants the readers to acknowledge those that work over them. And one of the ways that you guys as a church do, and I love it because I've had a few opportunities to go into staff meeting on a Monday, is how many of you write encouraging comments to the staff, to Stuart, to the preacher, 
at how, how much you encourage your leaders in that. And I want to say that is something I would encourage you to keep doing because that is, is a wonderful thing to acknowledge the work that they have put forth. He also wants you to hold them up. But he said, uses the word here to regard them. And what, he, what regard simply means, guys, is to acknowledge and think of them. Think of your ministers. Pray for your leaders. Ask them how they're going. Realize that they are people who are dealing with a lot of other people's problems. Realize that they are people who hurt, who suffer. Uh, we often expect and demand a lot from our ministers. We, we, we expect them to do a lot for us, and yet we sometimes will do very little for them. Uh, and yes, they're in leadership, and, and yes, there are higher callings for them, and yes, there are bigger expectations on them, but we need to think of them and care for them. Uh, thirdly, we need to live at peace. Now, this is a bit weird. Paul kind of talks about how to treat your leadership, and then he throws in this live at peace. And we know he's talking about leadership because, as you see in the very next line, he uses the idea and, he adds the word and, which means he's talking about something else. Uh, but he uses this idea of, of living at peace because I think what he's trying to say is that if you don't care for your leadership, if you ignore and hurt them, they, you will not be at peace. Your church family will not be at peace. And I have witnessed and spoken to other ministers who have been in conflict with their congregation and seen that it just, it all falls apart. Now, I want to be cautious here. I'm not saying that Stuart and Michael and Lauren get a free pass at everything and you, you can never pull them up when they have done the wrong thing, but our focus should be to encourage them and acknowledge the effort that they are putting in for our spiritual well-being. He wants us to lift, hold, and be at peace with our leaders. Paul then moves his attention from our leadership to each other. What are the responsibilities that you have for the person next to you, the person behind you, the person in front of you? And if you read from verse 14, he says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Paul wants us to warn and warn each other. He wants us to warn and rebuke, and particularly in the context of the future, he wants us to warn and rebuke because judgment will come. And I, I always used to think about what happens on the day that Jesus returns? What will our brothers and sisters be doing? Uh, and we are encouraged to warn each other that the path that we are heading on, the way that we are heading, the direction, the choices we are making may not be leading us to that confidence of salvation on the day of judgment. And so he encourages us as brothers and sisters to, to take responsibility for each other, to warn each other. Then he, he tells us to encourage one another, to build each other up, to talk to each other. Uh, Stuart has constantly reminded, talked about, not constantly, sorry, I make it sound like he's, but he's talked a lot about the importance of being in things like life groups, of being together. It's great to have conversations out the back, and they're, they're wonderful, but I take it from someone who can't be in those groups how much I wish I was, uh, and how sometimes you do feel on the outside when you're not part of those things, when you're not meeting up regularly with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are awesome ways to encourage one another, to build each other up, to discover what is going on in each other's lives that they're not going to share with you face-to-face. -face. Uh, a lot of you heard uh, at the vision meeting last year that Naomi and I had been struggling to have kids for four years. And one thing that I wish I could have done that whole time was to wear a sign that said, this is my problem, please come and talk to me about it. Because it's, it's not something we do. It's not something that's easy for us to just walk up to a complete stranger and go, oh, by the way, this is my big serious issue, do you want to, do you want to comfort me? Uh, we don't want to do that. Um, 
Most of us would be like, that's great. I'm going to go get Stuart, and he'll come and have a conversation with you. Uh, but we are actually encouraged to form these relationships so that we can. And if you are suffering in silence and you are in those relationships, share. And if someone shares with you, and even if you're not in a relationship with them like in that way, listen and care. Encourage one another. Be patient with one another. Uh, I'm a big fan of Purpose Driven Life. Has anyone here ever read that, Rick Warren? Yes, you're beating the 845 by a lot. It was just Stuart. Uh, he talks about EGR people, extra grace required, people that we find difficult. And it's not because they're bad people, they're wrong people, but because we are all different and we all talk differently, we all behave differently, we all interact differently, and we get used to certain ways. And then when we encounter someone who's different, it's, it's hard. And sometimes patience is required to talk, to spend time with them, to interact with them, to love them. And it's much easier to go, I'm going to just avoid you in the corner. I'm just going to go around. I mean, to give you an idea, I once went to a pet store because I saw someone coming through the shopping center that I didn't feel like talking to that day. And that's an example of someone who is not patient, someone who is not willing to have those conversations. But it's also a matter of being patient in the way that sometimes people aren't going to treat us the best. Sometimes we're going to feel hurt by them. And sometimes it's just because they're different. And patience is really important in, in loving and caring for people. Thirdly, guys, he doesn't say the words be at peace, but he talks about the idea of striving to do what is good, to do what is best for everyone around you. And that's kind of what this is. Warn, encourage, patience, this togetherness. It's all about what is best for each other. When someone is on their own, isolated, that is not what is best for them. When someone is in a group but never shares, that is not what is best for them. It's about knowing each other well and knowing how to care for each other. Thirdly, Paul moves to his focus, really, I want to say, on the Spirit and on, on Jesus in the Spirit. He says to them, he says, Rejoice if you look at me, verse 22, uh, sorry, 16. Yeah. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Three things that I think he really wants us to do. He wants us to seek Jesus. Rejoice, always pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus. Live a life that acknowledges Jesus regularly. Pray, rejoice, and give thanks. Not because life is good, not because it rained, although that is something to be thankful for, not because you got good-looking kids, rejoice, pray, give thanks because Jesus is with you and you know you are safe in what is to come. Secondly, seek the Spirit. Uh, this is where everything gets a bit mucky. Uh, Stuart and I had a long discussion about prophecy uh, and what it is in the New Testament. Uh, and my, I love not taking a stand on things, so I'm going to not take a stand on this and say that I'm not 100% sure what it means by prophecy, but what I do want to challenge you is are you willing to acknowledge that the Spirit works in ways that we don't understand. Uh, I don't think prophecy is coming forward tomorrow and telling you all that there's going to be a giant earthquake in six months. I think prophecy, especially in the New Testament, there are examples of predicted rain and, and, and other things, but it's more small-scale. It's more about people talking to you about something that, that can happen to you, something that you should do. But what Paul says, he doesn't just say, all right, embrace prophecy. He says, test it. Test the prophecy. 
And that's why when Harold Camping and his Christian radio station said that, I know when the world is going to end, we could turn to 1 Thessalonians, we could test what he has said against Thessalonians chapter 5 and say, no, you don't. We can look to 2 Peter 3 and say, no, you don't. We could look to Mark and Matthew and say, no, you don't. Because the Scriptures say otherwise. Prophecy does not add or contradict Scripture. It is informed by it and shaped by it. Thirdly, Paul, uh, finally, Paul says that we should seek God. Seek good, sorry. I need glasses, I think. Uh, we should seek good. It's, and it's not, not a goodness of just being nice. It's a goodness that if you remember our reading from 2 Peter, that idea of being holy in all that we do, living to please God in the confidence of the coming return of our King. Paul finally finishes up with this little statement Uh, His closing sort of passage from 1 Thessalonians, if you read me from verse 23, he says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. That is where our hearts lie as we look towards the future, that we have a God who is faithful, and we can come to his return with joy and confidence because we know he has saved us. If you are here for the first time, I want to encourage you to really consider Do you want to be part of a faithful God? Do you want to come to the end of your life, to the end of this world, in joy rather than fear? Because that is what is promised to the believers in Thessalonica. I talked a little bit about Harold Camping, and I I want to be cautious because I don't want to make fun of our brothers and sisters. And to his credit, the man, he actually publicly repented and acknowledged that he had done wrong and that it was foolish uh, when when the things came to pass. But my challenge to all of us is, what if the world hadn't finished on May 21st, but had finished on May 19th? Those believers would have been more prepared for the end of the world than I would have been. So my question to you is, where will you be when Jesus returns? Not, not geographically. What are you going to be doing when he returns? What is Jesus... It was something said to me at Kick, and it's a really powerful image. What is Jesus going to find you doing when he returns? Are you going to be doing something that is shameful, that is in darkness, or doing something that is light? Are you going to be treating your friends or families with contempt and frustration or anger, or loving and embracing those around you? And what are you doing to prepare? Are you looking after your leaders? Are you looking after each other? And are you looking to Jesus as the day of the Lord approaches? He is faithful. And we we know that we are saved through his grace. And so we should look to the future with joy. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is always with us. We thank you that you are a God who has restored us, who has saved us through the blood of Jesus on the cross. We thank you that we know he has risen from the grave and we are saved and forgiven through him. 
We pray that you'll help us to approach your return with anticipation and joy, to embrace what is to come in the knowledge that we are saved and not, not embrace it with fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.